everybody. Welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala, and I'm your host. And today I'm very happy to have as a guest Royal Canadian Air Force CH-149 Cormorant pilot, Captain Evan Southern, who's joining me from Canadian Forces Base Comox. Uh, Captain Southern has been a Cormorant pilot for a number of years, and he participated, or I guess was the crew commander for a major SAR event that happened in November of 2021. Uh, so Captain Southern's been very kind to join us today and share what happened on that day, uh, which is a record breaker for the Cormorant to my understanding. So I think it'll be an interesting story and a firsthand perspective. So Captain Southern, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, so as is customary with all of my guests, uh, I like to get a little bit of a sense of who you are, how you got to where you are. So my common question for all the guests is what made you join the military and what made you pick the branch that you did? Uh, well, I actually, I joined the military when I was 18. I, I had always wanted to be a pilot. Um, I was in the air cadets when I was young. So I started off, uh, getting a, a pilot's license when I was 17. Uh, and then I wanted to go to university and uh, I thought that uh, going to the military college might be a good option to get my foot in the door. So I applied there, got in, and uh, that's that's pretty much it. My dad was in the military as well. He was in the army. Uh, and so I kind of had a bit of an idea of what it, what it might be like. And he also encouraged me to, to follow that path if I wanted to. So... Uh, Different, different though he was in the army not the air force not a pilot so uh, i was i was just gonna say did he encourage you to go army or or was is he, is he like hey your your call yeah very much my call i think he knew that from a young age i was always interested in aviation so he never never tried to to, to you know send me any other direction really right on right on um so tell me a little bit about that process of of uh, training to be a pilot in the canadian air force uh, well, it's, uh, it, it, it kind of depends how you enter the, the Air Force, but for me, uh, well, I did my pilot, I started my pilot training right after I finished university at uh, the military college mm -hmm. and spent a few years uh, doing uh, primary flight training or the basic and the primary flight training, uh, which are uh, a couple different courses based in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan and Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. Mm -hmm. And then from there, uh, I did my advanced pilot training, which was on the helicopters, also in um, Porters La Prairie, and uh, then uh, switched over to flying the big, big helicopter, the Cormorant. And that took that didn't take very long. I mean, I started flying the Cormorant in 2017, and spent about uh, six months or so training on it until I became a first officer. And then that process to to become an aircraft commander was about two years. Awesome. Uh, and once you, so once you finish your training, just, just out of curiosity, how do you get streamed into the, uh, into the aircraft, the operational aircraft? Like, I assume that you, you are able to give your preference, but. Yeah. So during the first couple of phases of flight training, uh, you know, everybody does the same, the same basic training. So you'll fly you know, a small fixed wing aircraft and uh, uh, a couple different kinds. Uh, and then throughout that process, you kind of, you give your, your, your instructors and, and the people training you an idea of what you might want to fly down the road and mm -hmm. they kind of see where you'd fit in best and they'll kind of stream you into, the, you know, part, partly what your preference is, but also partly what the Air Force needs. Mm -hmm. So um, it's kind of a mix and uh, you kind of 
go from there. So, but as for which type of, say you get streamed uh, into the helicopter uh, side, well then on your next phase of training, when you do the, the helicopter training, then it's, it's more or less the same thing. You kind of decide, you know, I want to do search and rescue or I want to do tactical flying and that kind of thing. And uh, the needs of the Air Force and your preferences go together and they kind of figure out what, uh, what where they should send you. Right on. And so I have to ask, was, uh, was search and rescue um, Cormorant's your, your number one pick? Definitely. Definitely. Awesome. Okay. It so, always you, was, yeah. so you got to tell me a little bit about why, because yeah, because in, in the Canadian Air Force, the Royal Canadian Air Force, um, you can go search and rescue helicopters. You can do tactical flying, like you mentioned in the Griffin. Uh, you could go maritime helicopter with the, with the CH-148 Cyclone. Um, so you have some options. Yeah. So uh, why did I want to go search and rescue? Uh, honestly, I just, I liked the idea of helping Canadians when they, when they needed it. I liked the role. I thought, uh, I actually, I knew a couple of people that had uh, been in search and rescue for a while and just hearing about what their daily jobs were was always really interesting to me. And, um, I don't know. I also liked the, the look of the Cormorant. It was a big helicopter. It looked complicated. And I mean, as a younger guy, I thought, well, that's really cool. I want to do that. You know, it was, it's actually, it's simpler than you think, right? It's, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I actually missed a helicopter, the the Chinook, of course. So yeah, the Chinook, yeah, yeah. But uh, no, the, I I kind of agree with you. It, all of the aircraft are awesome, but um, but there's something about the Cormorant. Like, I mean, it's it's a big aircraft. So it, it, for those that are not familiar with the Cormorant, give a description of of the aircraft and kind of what we're looking at. So the Cormorant, uh, it is a three-engined helicopter. Um, it has two hoists on the side, uh, a ramp uh, that opens and closes, uh, and it's uh, the cabin's big enough to fit a uh, crew. Our standard crew is five people. Uh, we can often take six or seven, but the max capacity, I guess, of the cabin would be, you know, something around 20, 20, you know, could be even more people like, like the mission we're going to talk about. Uh, so, yeah, big, big aircraft, lots of power, large rotor blades, uh, large footprint, for a helicopter anyway and lots of capability two hoists uh, everything like that yeah yeah it is a big big helicopter which is kind of one of the reasons why i like it but uh, three engines it's got a lot of power and uh must just be a, a how is it to fly it uh just like any other helicopter really i mean uh it's agile it's uh it's uh powerful uh a lot of us say that it has a lot of momentum just because, you know, the size of it, but uh, I personally find it to be um, uh, just as nimble and just as active as any small helicopter. Uh, it was designed that way, really. Um, yeah, but uh, you, you can go a lot further than, than most helicopters because uh, the, the legs are really long, carries a lot of fuel, and okay. you, can, you can carry a lot more, more things, more people, uh, more equipment, so... Yeah, it's a little bit more capable, I would say, in a lot of roles than a smaller helicopter would be. For sure. And it, it, just in terms of like, you know, general numbers, uh, what is a max distance you could fly in, in the Cormorant? Well, that would depend on a lot of things, you know, like winds sure. and, and whatnot. And uh, but I think the longest flight I've ever done in the Cormorant was about five hours uh, cruising. Uh, so, wow. you know, numbers could be anywhere from, I don't know, you know, 300 to 500 miles, depending on... Uh, all the you know conditions and that kind of thing so right right and you talked a little bit about the interior but if you could explain it, uh, to our listeners um, how it's configured inside because 
as a search and rescue helicopter, you have to carry a lot of equipment. And obviously there's the, the search and rescue technicians that are that are in the back uh, and they have a job uh, as well. So if you don't mind could explain kind of how you're outfitted in the search and rescue role and also what the SAR techs, what their, what their role and function is, please. So we have two pilots always. We have a flight engineer. So the, the crew is two pilots, a flight engineer, and two SAR techs, two search and rescue technicians. Uh, the in terms of equipment, we carry we have a couple shelves full of various SAR equipment, everything from you know mountain rescue uh, ropes, that kind of thing. We have uh, um, you know marine rescue uh, items. We have uh, things that we need to medical gear to help uh, patients if they've been in some sort of uh, accident where they got hurt. We have a we carry a stretcher in the on the one side. Um, and then uh, all of our own personal gear too are in the back. That's kind of the, the general layout of, of equipment. Mm -hmm. uh, the Sartex they train. They have a ability to do um, a lot of different uh, a lot of different things on the fixed wing side. They can they do pararescue on the helicopter. Not so much because we can insert them via the hoist or by landing. And so they'll carry out medical intervention. Uh, they'll they'll well they'll first get to a patient. So that could mean you know rappelling down the side of a mountain. That could mean uh, swimming that could mean inserting by a hoist onto a boat or into the trees uh, to say a plane crash that kind of thing uh, and then they do medical intervention uh, they'll prepare a patient to be extracted and removed from the scene and then that's when we as a crew carry on from there right on so uh, so yeah i guess the crux of the of the matter is you have to be prepared you have to be outfitted and prepared for any eventuality because um for those that are unaware of uh your base and the geography that you guys fly around out of canadian forces base comox um you're flying over water you're flying over mountains um boy you could really get anything yeah we do rescues all the time throughout the mountain so our area of uh, responsibility would be all of British Columbia, the Yukon, and a couple hundred miles out to sea. So we'll do we'll do uh, rescues uh, or or medevacs off of, of container ships or, or or any other fishing ship that kind of thing out to sea. We'll do uh, rescues in the mountains of uh, anybody that's been in an aviation accident, that kind of thing. Uh, sometimes we're asked by the province to help with uh, medevacs or rescues of. Uh, uh, people that say lost hikers or that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, throughout all of BC and all the climates and all the terrain that we have out here. Wow, it, that is awesome. And uh, it must make flying really interesting because, and I guess that's one of the neat things about search and rescue is you really don't know what you're going to be faced with uh, when when the, uh, when the I guess you're, you're dispatched by the Joint Rescue Coordination Center. Yeah, but flying is definitely interesting. I, I always say it seems it seems like a lot of the rescues we do are, uh, you know, at night or in, in less than ideal weather, that kind of thing. So we're always prepared for the worst. Uh, but, you know, we have days where, you know, it's it's a little easier. But yeah, any, anything can happen at any time. You could, we, we come to work every day and we have no idea what to expect. So sometimes we get a call and half an hour later, we're on our way to, you know, something crazy that we've never seen before. So right, you know, right. Like in November. Right. Well, exactly. And that is, uh, it's a, it's a great segue over to, uh, to this particular uh, search and rescue mission. So um, paint the picture for me. I believe it was November 15th, if, uh, if memory serves. It was about mid-November, yeah. Yeah. 
And so British Columbia at the time was experiencing um, torrential rains. Um, I believe they called it an atmospheric river at the time. And um, so there was a lot of flooding and the flooding also, uh, I guess, caused a number of mudslides. Um, so tell me about you guys and just your normal preparedness uh, being a SAR crew and, and then talk me through what happened. So that day, uh, just just like every other day, we showed up to work. Um, uh, so we're just a little bit of background. We're on call all the time. So 24 seven, we always have a crew on call. And depending on the time of day, we have a different response uh, kind of time frame. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're at home, you have a certain amount of time to get airborne after being called in. If you're at work, there's another another window there. So we were we were it was, you know, a standard day showed up uh, on time and uh, prepared a crew for for a training day, actually. Uh, and uh, then uh, then we got tasked on this. It was it, honestly, we didn't have any idea that this was this was going to happen that morning, but uh, but it did. So. So when you get a, a tasking from JRCC, the Joint Rescue Coordination Center, how does that happen? So they just they pick up a phone, they call you guys and say, hey, you know, this is what's happening. Yeah, so usually there's a lot that happens in the background before we get called. So right. no matter what the rescue or the, what the mission is, uh, the rescue center will do the investigation on the situation. They'll figure out what they need for, for terms of assets to go and uh, uh do the do the mission uh, and then they'll start calling us so uh, as an example if a plane crashes uh, and, a, and an emergency beacon is going off they'll investigate the beacon figure out where it is who it is uh, and you know if it's even valid like if it's it's if it's a real thing or just a nuisance kind of uh, situation mm-hmm. and then they'll say okay well, now we need a helicopter to go there they'll call us and then we go we accept that you know we look at the weather that kind of thing that we accept the tasking go so on this day on november 15th uh, it was no different so they I, th- I think what uh what happened is they had a request from the province and uh then they called us and asked us if we'd be able to assist awesome and it, i guess for for sake of clarification for those that are listening uh to this podcast that are outside of canada i think it's important to mention that um Unlike other places where it might be the Coast Guard that responds in Canada, it's the Air Force that has that, uh, that is tasked with that search and rescue response in, in terms of aviation assets. Yeah, so aviation and marine, marine uh, rescues are a primary mandate. And then right. uh, a kind of a third thing we, we call it humanitarian would be anything that's managed by the provinces. So in BC, you know, lost hikers, that kind of thing is is something that emergency management BC would uh, handle. And then uh, when requested, we may assist depending on availability and that kind of thing. Right, right. Okay. So uh, so on this particular day, you were going to do a training flight and then you get this call. Um, can you recall a little bit about what, like, you know, as you mentioned, they've kind of gone through their process, but what did they say, you know, go here and, and why? Well, uh, they said that the province was uh, was requesting our assistance. They didn't know that much information at the time because nobody had been on the scene yet. So uh, I don't know if everybody understands, but what, what had happened was uh, a landslide. So there's a highway that goes through uh, between Hope and Agassiz, uh, so near near the Metro Vancouver area. And it's um, under, well, not underneath, but it's next to a, a bunch of steep slopes. And because of this atmospheric river, it rains so much that, uh, from what I gather, the slopes became 
quite saturated and unstable and uh, there were a few landslides that happened. So one landslide happened and all sorts of traffic kept going on the highway and then another landslide happened ahead or I don't know which order it was in, but there were two landslides and a whole bunch of people and cars were trapped between the two and there was no way out. Uh, so when we got the call in the morning, we were told, well, uh, it's possible that there's a risk of a further landslide that could injure or kill those people that are stuck in between the two landslides. Um, and I think they had done some investigation on whether that risk was was there. Mm-hmm. And so they asked us if uh, what kind of assistance we could be in evacuating those people from between the landslides. So we told them, you know, it's the Cormorant, we can take a lot of people. Uh, and we were willing to accept the task. And so at least for this standby um, search and rescue crew, which is my crew, mm-hmm. uh, we did. Awesome. So tell me about uh, launching out and how long did it take you to get there? And, and yeah, what was it like when you actually arrived on scene? So, well, first when I, I, we had two, uh, actually, um, all the heads that were involved in planning the thing were, were really on their A game that day. We had a lot of really highly competent and qualified people. It just so happened that we had six aircraft commanders uh, qualified. We had a bunch of uh, senior flight engineers and senior um, SAR techs who uh, all came together and uh, over, over the whole course of the day and plan the execution of this thing probably in the most efficient way we could so when i first got the I, I was i got the call because the other pilot was uh was doing something in another room and uh, i was actually kind of shocked at what they first said which was something like uh, i don't know 150 or so people were trapped between the landslides and we said you know what that's okay we can take a whole bunch of people in the helicopter let's get going let's go and, and try and help out so we did okay uh, and uh right at that pretty much at that same time our, our commanding officer uh uh, while we were on our way, he was able to uh, get a bunch of other pilots and other crew members together and two other helicopters. And because I think he had the big picture of, oh, this is probably going to be a little bit more than just the one, uh, you know, that one hel- helicopter is capable of doing. So he got those crews and helicopters together and sent them as well. So we were kind of first and we started making our way. And then the other two helicopters started following behind us. Um, it took us about, uh, I would say, about an well, an hour or so to get to Agassiz. So, excuse me. Um, so our, our first task was actually to pick up the uh, QSAR, the heavy urban uh, search and rescue team in Agassiz, uh, and then bring them to the scene because nobody had been there yet, right? Right. It took us a little bit longer. We, we went to Agassiz, took about an hour to get there. Um, we had to go around a bunch of weather in the, in the Vancouver area, but we got there, picked them up, uh, and then brought them to another I think it was about uh, five or 10 minutes from Agassiz to the scene mm-hmm. of the landslides. Okay. Yeah. And then, so a total of just over an hour to get there really. Right. And what was it like when you, when you did arrive on scene? Uh, because yeah, now it's the first time you're actually seeing what you're dealing with. Well, the weather was pretty poor. So we, we, uh, you know, we had, you know, we were actually focused on a lot of different things at the time. We were focused on the people in the back. We had 20 or so of these, uh, the Hussar uh, people we had, weather to deal with, dodging clouds, rain, mist, that kind of thing. We had, uh, you know, the worry about, you know, where do we land that to drop these people off? Cause it's a small little narrow highway next to the mountains and there's landslides, uh, you know, here and there. Right. Uh, so, and there were, and of course down there, there were on the road, there were tons of cars and people, right? So it started to get complicated when we showed up cause you know, just like any other mission we do, you never really know what you're going to see until you get there. And right. There's a lot of things. There was a lot of things going on. Plus, we had two other helicopters coming behind us, waiting for an idea of what to do when they got there or what what the scene looked like. So, yeah. a lot of juggling. Yeah. 
it's I think important here to to note that um, I have done a chat with Colonel Larue, who's your commanding officer before, and he mentioned that of those two uh, following helicopters, it was kind of interesting because I think he said one of them was doing uh, training flights, so it was crewed up and. Uh, so that was kind of available. And then one of the other aircraft was just on the ground anyways. So one of the other helicopters was flying, uh, it was their oper operational training flight. So they were doing there. I think they were training some flight engineers. So they were out, uh, uh, I can't remember where exactly, somewhere near Comox. And we recalled them back to the base uh, as we were, as we were leaving right. for the, for the landslides. So they fueled up and they got a couple Sartex on board and then they took off. And the third helicopter, I believe, uh, was it well it was just in the hangar but the crew i think they were in working just working in the office uh and uh obviously they're available so they just got on this uh this helicopter that was ready to go yeah and the one thing that i found interesting about that was colonel larue mentioned that they actually pulled everything out of the back of that particular helicopter so it didn't have any equipment but it was just uh, able to accept as many people as possible which yeah. I thought was kind of cool you know different configurations of, of the helicopter yeah so like I described before this this the standby helicopter has uh, uh, you know we we have a bunch of shelving full of uh, medical and rescue equipment then we have a stretcher and a bunch of seats and shelves in the back uh, so we have room to do rescues but we don't often do rescues of doing you know 300 people so uh, we were, our, the first helicopter, the, the SAR helicopter was, uh, probably not, uh, it wasn't the, it was, it was pretty full. Like we, we didn't have a lot of room in it, but the other two that followed kind of had an idea of what they were getting into. So they, uh, they did take out a lot of the gear and made room for people, um, more room for people anyway. Right. Uh, right. Back. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So let's get back to your particular helicopter. And so you've got all these people on board, um, yeah, tell me about setting down and and what happened with them. Uh, so we got to the scene, so the landslide, and we uh, didn't exactly know where to land. So what we actually did was we kind of hovered over the road for a little bit and to, in hopes that uh, people would make uh, kind of like a landing zone. We had to figure out where we the cormorant's quite wide, or the rotors are um, it's, it's wide, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so imagine a highway, a little a little strip of road with a with a steep slope on one side and then an, an, a descending steep slope on the other and maybe, and some, some obstacles, trees and power lines, that kind of thing. So we had to fit somewhere on that highway. Right. So we, we went and we hovered along, we found the widest place. And, uh, as we were doing that, uh, people got into their cars and started moving them out of the way. So I, I think they realized we were trying to land. Right. Yeah. So we did, and we dropped off the, the Hughes crew and, and so that they could coordinate what was happening on the scene uh, and, and do whatever else uh, it is that they did. Uh, and then we took off and uh, well, actually we loaded a bunch of people on first uh, and then took off the next two helicopters that came used a different landing site. Um, and it was, well, it looks like it was on the land side itself. Uh, and they used that cause it was much wider. But at that point, the Hughes team had moved the cars away from that out of, out of the danger area. So that those helicopters could land there. Ah, uh, interesting. Okay. That was the landslide that was closest to Agassiz. So on the, on the Vancouver side of the scene, um, half the mountain came down, it looks like, and broken trees, bro uh, mud, rocks, big rocks. And the debris actually goes quite a ways. I don't know exactly how far, but it was a couple hundred feet. So it wasn't like it was some narrow, a, a little narrow landslide. These people couldn't get out of there. They couldn't even walk across the landslide. 
at debris, even if they tried, right? Because not only was it full of hazards like the rocks and the trees, but it was also pretty deep, you know, um, mud, mud and water and that kind of thing. Right, right. So how you as a pilot, how do you determine where you can come in? And obviously, you've got to find a spot that um, that doesn't have all that debris. So <laughs> it always depends when you show. So we practice this kind of thing all the time. On our regular training days, we land, you know, we, we go and find areas to, to practice landing and, you know, just mm -hmm. on a daily basis. So for us, you know, the training kicks in, you do everything you need to do. And you, you can just figure it out, right? Um, in this case, uh, so when the Husser team moved the cars back, because we were quite heavy, we had to have just the way that we fly helicopters. We have to have kind of a, a way to to land if you know anything were to go wrong, so we're not you know going into trees that kind of thing. Sure. So we use the landslide area to do the approach, and then uh, turn around in it, and then at least my aircraft we did was we backed up onto the road and then landed on the pavement there. But uh, I think there is a picture of the landslide, uh, one of the helicopters sitting on the mud right at the edge of the landslide. And that worked too, because it wasn't very, it wasn't very deep there. That was, I think at the time, the widest, the area that was close to the people that they could fit. This was one of the first times they landed, I think. Wow. That, was, that wasn't my crew. That was another crew. So, and then the Sartex got out and they actually, they, they, cleared some of the debris around the helicopter using um, shears and uh, saws and that kind of thing to, to make more room for the helicopter. Wow. Um, but it was a process. Like it wasn't, you know, even by the end of the day, everything, not everything was as straightforward as, uh, as we, <laughs> we would have hoped. Right. So. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's amazing just to see like the weather as well. It was not great. No. Great so day. like we were saying before, it was an atmospheric river uh, that came through the area that lasted a couple of days and it just rained and rained and rained and hence the landslides. But uh, even that day, it didn't stop raining. It was misty. It was rainy. The clouds were in and out, um, pretty low clouds. There were times where it was so misty that we had to wait a few minutes to, to depart again. Uh, yeah, it was all in all quite a challenge. And then added on to that, we had other aircraft in the area. So we had to kind of manage, uh, manage that. Hey, everyone. Here's a quick note about our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. The type of mission proficiency in this episode is the level that is essential for aviators and warfighters who must be prepared to face new challenges as well as emerging threats. Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions is a company that trains customers worldwide to improve their effectiveness and operational readiness. Warfighters from the United States, as well as allied partners like Canada and others, rely on Cubic to prepare them to excel in multi-domain operations more effectively and with less risk. Cubic values our goal in sharing stories from warfighters around the world, and in doing so, we're also trying to do our best to preserve history from first-hand accounts. We are proud to have Cubic as a teammate for this podcast. To learn more about them, please visit them at cubic.com. Now back to our show. So tell me how many people you guys actually rescued, because I think that's one of the neatest things about this particular mission was uh, it broke all records in terms of a cormorant response rescue. Yeah, so uh, each lift was a little bit different because we had to estimate the amount of weight that we were taking on. And I mean, they, they were all uh, they were all pretty full. So like I was saying before, I think 
I think the average was, uh, you know, something around 20, 20 plus people per, per lift, per helicopter. Mm-hmm. And what you have to understand is that we, what makes it so, so you know, kind of big for the Cormorant community is that we almost never carry that many people on the Cormorant. And we certainly never rescued whatever it was in the, quoted in the news, 311 people in one mission. Juggling three helicopters back and forth that were in and out of the scene all day long, uh, carrying a full load of people every time was never done before on the Cormorant. Um, it's certainly big enough, you know, and it's powerful enough and, you know, our crews are good enough to do it uh, and well, you know, trained well enough. But uh, like I said, we just, this kind of thing never happens. So this just was ongoing all day long. <laughs> oh, you know? man. And and so we we took off each time we came back to the scene and picked up a full load of people. We took off through the five or ten minutes to to Agassiz. They had they had set up a like a reception center, almost a place for the people to go and get any you know medical treatment, and then go on from there. Okay. We just we dropped them off. They got taken by uh, taken away by the uh, the paramedics and the police and the other people helping there, and then we just came right back. It was just like that all day long. So the scale of things. You know, for for me anyway, normally when we do we do rescues, uh, you know, it's often one person, two people, three maybe. You know, and sometimes like last year there was a there was a it was it was also in the news at one point you might have read about uh, there was a I think it was a fishing vessel that sunk off the east coast, and the cormorant was involved as well as some U.S. Coast Guard helicopters and they rescued something like thirty people, right? Wow. But all in all, but it wasn't just in one helicopter, right? So right, right. We very rarely get. Uh, get this kind of number you know well it, it speaks to the capacity of the aircraft like it, you know it's it perhaps fortuitous that um, that it was the cormorant responding as opposed to a smaller platform well and that's like a, it's a kind of an important thing right so there was a risk of further landslides in that area and there were so many people there that needed to get out and we did we tell we told the rescue center when we left in the morning that you know we're going to be able to do this probably um, it'll it'll take a while, but it'll probably be quicker than probably any other way that they could think. They they said, yeah, that you know that's a big bonus, right? You can carry a lot of people, you can get this done quickly. Well, quickly, you know, enough. But uh, right, you know, that was the big thing, right? Yeah. Um, so talk to me as you mentioned, you're doing this all day. So then, logistically speaking, how do you manage uh, refueling, and where do you go for that? And and like just in terms of crew. Um, also uh, crew fatigue. Um, so yeah, exactly. So we had three helicopters going, we had all these people to move, uh, weather, other aircraft in the area doing doing other, you know, different rescues and other activities. <laughs> and uh, we had to get fuel as well. So the way we came together as, as three separate crews was pretty amazing. Um, you know, managing all that really smoothly while flying. Uh, you know, it was uh, just a testament. Everybody that was managing that side of it did a really good job. I personally was flying. I was at the controls most of the day. So the other pilot, um, Captain uh, John Groton, he was doing most of the mission management there and uh, phenomenal. So, you know, what we normally do on a SAR mission is we get little little bits of information. Then we go out, do the mission and kind of figure, usually we have somewhat of a plan when we leave. And that's kind of the goal to have, have a good plan. But sometimes we don't have enough information. We can build a plan as we go, right? So that was right. kind of what happened this day. We pretty much had to you know, figure everything out uh, you know, on, on the, the fly. fly. Yeah. Right. But we, you know, and then we, you know, where do we get fuel? We went to Chilliwack. Um, they were really big help there at the Chilliwack airport. Okay. Um, 
there was, uh, I think one aircraft might've gone to Abbotsford at one point. Um, yeah, so it was, uh, it was just a juggling act. And then of course, you know, going to the fuel pumps, there's only room for one big helicopter. So then, you know, okay, so we'll go now. You guys keep going to pick up people until you're out of gas and we'll be gone by the time you get back there. But then there's also only room for one helicopter in Agassiz. So it was, you know, the same things. So and I got two of those situations going at the same time. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely a dance. To what degree do you guys train to this kind of a potential response? Or do you? Like, you know, I, I appreciate that the squadron up until recently um, operated both the Buffalo uh, fixed wing search and rescue aircraft and also the Cormorant. So, you know, I can totally see that you guys would have uh, coordination amongst those two different uh, types of aircraft, uh, same squadron. Um, but how about in terms of like this, this type of coordination of multiple Cormorant helicopters? Uh, well, first of all, as, as I said before, it's, it's really, it's impossible to ever predict something like this happening. So sure. uh, I wouldn't say we've ever trained to do specifically this kind of thing. Uh, okay. But what we do do is train for, you would train the best we can to uh, cover everything we might be asked to do at any point. And another thing we do is we train to be adaptable and flexible. So I would say that, uh, that, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say it was another day at the office, really, because as you can see, it really wasn't. But right. this is our job, and everybody that is employed in SAR has to be able to and is capable of being flexible in order to accomplish a mission like this. So while it wasn't directly, we don't, haven't ever directly trained for this, uh, everything we do comes together, and then we execute uh, a mission like this. Yeah, and you know, I had the fortune to fly with your squadron uh, very recently, and one of the things that really struck me at the time, because you know, I was wearing uh, headphones and I was mic'd up, and uh, I was in the back of a buffalo, and one thing that really struck me was how amazingly professional, which I would naturally expect. You know, the Royal Canadian Air Force is a professional uh, service, professional force. But how, how well the crew coordination was between not only the, the crew of the, the, the aircraft that I was on, but um, the different assets that we were flying with, it was, it was really impressive to see. So I can totally appreciate what you're saying that, you know, you don't really train to this particular scenario, but uh, you train and, uh, and you sh you're all kind of on the same, I guess, um, sheet of music and can come together. Yeah, exactly. I was actually flying that day and we, we kind of ran into each other uh, in the office. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, well, exactly. I mean, even that day, um, you know, we came up with a plan in the morning and then kind of flew the plan. So most of our, and the way that it just, you know, we train in the Air Force, uh, at least in, in search and rescue is that, uh, like I said before, we just kind of, we, we train to the best of our ability to cover everything that we're expected to cover. And then from there, it's just a matter of, like you said, being professional. The people I work with are all su super professional and super adaptable and able to kind of put everything they have in the back of their, their head there in their toolbox and apply it to a situation like this. Right, which is a testament to the to the training, testament to the it, not just the the initial training, but obviously the training that you guys continually do at the, at the squadron. Um, and I don't know if I mentioned it before, and I was remiss. Um, you guys are with four four two transport and rescue squadron, so got to give a shout out to the squadron. We hope you are enjoying this episode of the Go Bold podcast. 
Please take a moment to like and subscribe so you don't miss any of our fabulous guests and topics. Now, back to our show. So you mentioned that this was going on all day. Um, how long did it take until you guys were kind of wrapping this up? And uh, yeah, sorry. It was. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, because there is uh, the other thing that I really wanted to speak about today, and I know I appreciate that you were not on those rescues, but um, but I kind of let you know that I was going to ask this yeah. because this particular day, if, if this wasn't enough, there were two other active search and rescue events happening that the squadron was responding to. And to whatever degree you can, it would be just nice to be able to share that with the listeners, because to me, it is like one of the busiest days, you know, I've, I've covered you guys for decades, literally, and uh, it's one of the busiest days I have ever heard of, which is why I was excited to have this chat with you. So it seemed almost like the day that would never end because, uh, you know, there was so much going on. And actually, I was on sort of on one of those other missions, but I'll talk, your first question was about uh, how long it took us to, to get this done. So at first I was describing when we got the call, it was right in the morning when we showed up and we normally show up somewhere anywhere between 6.30 and 7 in the morning. Um, so we took off, you know, shortly after that, probably around eight, I think. And then by sunset, we had finished, our goal was to get everybody out of there before sunset. I mean, we do operate at night. Uh, we fly with night vision goggles uh, in all conditions. So mm-hmm. We, if we had to, we would have continued to fly and we would have continued to, to get people out of the landslide, but it wasn't necessary because we were, we were done by that point. Uh, just so happened though, so what you're referring to is two other um, SAR cases that happened. Um, the first one, I, I don't know a lot about because it was a fixed wing. The Buffalo was right. attacked on that. I think what it was, is there was this uh, vessel, uh, fishing or shipping vessel in distress in the Queen Charlotte's, so um, towards Sandspit, Haidegui. Yeah, my my understanding from what the colonel said was it was a sinking vessel. Um, so obviously we had three helicopters in Agassiz doing doing this thing, and uh, if if they needed us to go uh, to the sinking vessel, we would have probably tasked one to go. But one of the buffaloes uh, right. went up there. Uh, I don't think by the time they got somewhere en route, I think they the one of the Coast Guard assets was able to provide assistance. Uh, anyway, so uh, that uh, was kind of taken care of at that time. And this was, I think this was early afternoon when that oh, happened. Okay. Um, the second uh, the second case that happened was there was a report of a uh, plane, an air, a small aircraft that had uh, crashed in the, uh, somewhere along the Coquihalla and we had a, a distress beacon signal. And so okay. since I was, uh, our crew was the star standby crew, we actually had to leave the Agassiz uh, the scene of the Agassiz rescue in order to try and go up there. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. So a lot of things happening at once there. Um, we, we, we attempted to get up there, but the weather was too, uh, poor to get there. So we weren't able to, however, there was another crew that did go up and they were able to get to the scene later that night. Um, somewhere after mid sometime after midnight. Right. So that's what I mean. It was the day that never ended. We did the Agassiz thing. We had, we had that, uh, that other, tasking and then there was another helicopter that went out later that night yeah and my understanding is uh from what i recall what the colonel shared with me was um the helicopter got to that uh downed aircraft um sadly the pilot had perished uh but there were crews that stayed there overnight until they were picked up the next day and and you know um, 
were able to bring, I assume, the pilot, uh, the deceased back. Yeah, so I don't know those exact details about what happened with the pilot of the aircraft, but I do know that uh, that's that I think is accurate that they they did leave the Sartex were on scene at the aircraft uh, overnight. And I think a lot of that had to do with weather. So like I said, this atmosphere right. we was going through is the same day as the landslides, right? Uh, right. And so poor weather all throughout. Uh, we did get a helicopter in there at night, then they had to leave, couldn't get back until the next morning. So yeah, so we had a, I'd say we had a hel at least one helicopter in the, in the Hope area for, I don't know, two straight days, essentially. Wow. Like, you know, when you say uh, the mission that never ends or the day that never ends, uh, yeah, it's literally that case. And, well, and that's and just it, right? Like we, we got 311 or so people, 20 something dogs and cats and other animals out of the uh, landslides only to go, you know, to a sinking vessel on the Buffalo, uh, a plane crash, another plane crash uh, or incident with the Cormorant. So there was a lot going on that day. And for the Cormorant, uh, you know, to keep flying all day long with with the crews that we had we had enough crews to do it i mean we were it was uh but that was uh probably the busiest in the five years i've been here in comox probably the busiest day that i've seen well captain southern you know this has been a great great pleasure for me to 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 chat with you and to hear your firsthand experience of this um I commend you guys at the squadron. You know, I, I was so proud to be up there just recently and to see the things that you guys do and how professional you are. And um, yeah, I'm sure all of the 300 and some odd people that were rescued are very appreciative of you guys as well because they would have been stuck otherwise. And uh, so, yeah, exactly. I, I, uh, we're, it's, uh, it's our duty really. And we're always happy to help whenever we can. And uh, yeah, that day was, uh, like every other day, we were there and ready to ready to take part. You know, it, it's got to be one of the neat things about being in the Air Force and being in this particular community, because, you know, of course, the Air Force has many different roles and uh, some are kinetic. And that's just a function of some of the things that an Air Force does. But in your case, everything you do is to serve the community and to help people that are in distress. And sure. that's got to be a really really rewarding uh very rewarding, rewarding. thing to do. it's very rewarding i uh all the of all the i would say there's no one mission that i've done or sorry mission that i've done since being here in comox that you know that i would put over any other in terms of fulfillment but it's all very fulfilling and rewarding uh flying for me and for probably everybody else here uh but this on this day specifically i would say we we had an effect on 300 people's lives and it was it was just an amazing thing to be a part of and we're really happy to have been able to help well, a, a historic day indeed, for sure, uh, which I, you know, let's hope it doesn't get topped. Yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> don't want to, yeah, exactly. Don't want to do anything like that again, if we can help it. So, uh, but hey, uh, I'm glad that you guys are there. And I'm sure everybody else is as well. Um, Captain Everton Southern, uh, Royal Canadian Air Force, uh, Cormorant pilot. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a true pleasure to chat with you. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, that was Captain Evan Southern, everybody. And um, if you have any questions for us, please reach out to us at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. And we look forward to seeing you on another episode of Go Bold. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. 
This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.